Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Commerce Cast, which is an NCR Greenhouse podcast production where we bring in industry experts to discuss the latest trends and insights in the world of retail, hospitality, and self-directed banking. NCR Greenhouse is part of NCR Corporation, the leading technology and platform provider for these industries. My name is Ismail Amla, and I'm the Executive Vice President responsible for consulting, advisory, and technology services for NCR, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest joining us today on the podcast. Today, we have legendary management thinker, strategy expert, best-selling author, welcome Rita McGrath. Um, I, I want to talk about innovation, which I know is a space you're very much into. Talk a little bit about how do you find it, how do you do it, how do you make it stick and the cultural change around it. But maybe to start off with, Rita, a little bit about yourself. How do you find yourself in this space researching these sort of areas? Well, I originally was out of my undergraduate experience working for the city of New York. And at the time it was a digital transformation. Of course, we didn't call it that then, we called it computerization. And yeah. I was just fascinated by how an you know, old established organization was able to learn to do new things. And that's an interest that has stuck with me ever since. Yeah, and, and you, you, I'll read in your book, um, seeing around corners and you talk about the importance of anticipating change rather than just reacting to it. Is that, did, did that come from that experience where you were there in the city of New York? Well, yes. Um, I, I think the idea was that, um, so this would have been in the 80s and <laughs> the waves of digital change had just really begun, I guess, around that time. And it was so interesting to see the people that were willing to go with it, you know, were willing to accept it and embrace it versus the people that just resisted and were kind of stuck in the old ways and how much more effective and efficient the people that were willing to embrace the innovations became. Uh, it was a fascinating lesson. Yeah, and, and just bringing it to life, right? So if you think about what we've been through in terms of, or going through in terms of change, you know, we've had the pandemic, we've had the recession, we've had the war. And the obvious question is, are these, are these things we could have foreseen? Well, when you look at any major change, um, and then you go back in time, there are always early warnings. There are always leading indicators. So one of, and, and one of my favorite stories is about uh, the Wright brothers. So they invented manned flight. Uh, the first manned flight you know, got up in the air and came down again was in 1903. And so you would think the newspapers would have been all over this, right? I mean, people have wanted to fly since we've been people. <laughs> and yet the next day in the newspaper, nothing. The next month in the newspaper, nothing. The next year in the newspaper, nothing. It took until 1908, five solid years later, before any serious uh, news organization explored what the Wright brothers had actually accomplished. And we see this lag in every aspect of life. I mean, when we first invented moving pictures, nobody knew what a moving picture was. And so what they did was they filmed stage plays. <laughs> and, and it wasn't for decades before we figured out, oh, you could, you could actually film the thing in a different sequence that it needed to occur in the movie. You could cut it up, you know, you could, you could do introduce sound that wasn't there when you filmed it and end end it. And so I think one of the realities and one of the reasons that I think the seeing around corners theme is so interesting is that the signals are always there, but often we're not paying attention or we're so wedded to the experiences we've had in the past that we never move forward. 
Mm. Uh, I'm really interested that you mentioned the Wright brothers. Actually, we went to Dayton, Ohio, where one of the planes is, and and the Wright brothers, I don't know whether they live, they they definitely live there because we saw their house. And what what surprised me was Dayton, Ohio was the Silicon Valley of its time because the amount of inventions coming through from the period, it's incredible, incredible history lesson for us. But but what you, what you talk about there, Rita, which is early signals, and in the book you talk about something which I really love the term around snow melting at the edges, which is to find out what you might, you know, the, what you might be anticipating, what you should be potentially anticipating. Um, just talk a little bit about what you mean when you talk about snow melting at the edges. Yeah, so this is a phrase that Andy Grove, actually, who did some of the original work on uh, strategic inflection points based on his experiences as CEO of Intel. But he said, if you wish to see where spring is making itself felt, you must travel to the periphery for that's where the snow is most exposed. And the way that I look at that exact phenomena is when I talk about snow melting from the edges, it's that, you know, it's the the weird things that you often don't notice, but which start to manifest themselves, you know, where where senior executives don't tend to live, right? It, it's mm. some somebody in a call center picking up the phone and saying, well, that's weird. Nobody ever asked about that before. Or someone on a loading dock saying, I never saw that competitor in here before. So it's those early warnings that make themselves felt often very far apart from where decisions get made in the organization. Hmm. And, 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 and there's lots of weak signals uh, there. Um, which ones do you go after? You know, which one do you bet? Yeah, well, I think there's a, there's a, when, when you think about weak signals, there's a bit of pattern recognition that comes into play. And the way I like to think about it is if you imagine something that happens in the future that could be great or it could be terrible, um, you know, I call that a time zero event. And uh, so let's take the case of healthcare, you know, let's say, okay, healthcare is going to be much more like retail is today, you know, where it's 24 seven, always on, very convenient. Um, and so you say, okay, 50% of healthcare delivery is going to be in that model, like that, that's your time zero event. And then you go backward and you say, well, before that could be true, what would have to happen? And there's some very interesting patterns that you can detect even today. You know, Best Buy today has a chief medical officer. There's a whole section of their web page that's dedicated to at-home technology. Um, you've seen both Amazon and Walmart making massive moves into the delivery of healthcare. And 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 so when you start to put together all those signals, it's the combinations that suggest when something is definitely becoming much more likely to happen. Yeah, and, and you talk there about retail and health, for example, as an industry uh, maybe coming together. We certainly see in our industry financial services and retail coming together. Is that is that a trend you're seeing? You talk about arenas rather than industries. Is that what you mean? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the uh, the definition of an industry as the most important place to look for your competitive rivals, I think that is really out of date now. And that what we're looking at instead is ecosystems, in many cases competing with ecosystems. And you're also seeing the retailization of, of all kinds of services, financial services, healthcare services. Um, and, and I think that's because consumers, when they're looking at, at how they want to be served, they're not looking at your industry 
exclusively. They're saying, why can't everything I deal with be as good as Apple? You know, why can't every technology be as user-friendly as the very best technology I've been exposed to? So in that sense, it, even if you're in healthcare, even if you're in financial services, you're actually competing with the very best of what a consumer experience is from any sector. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, we, we spot these uh, signals. We're looking as broad as we can around them. And that's where I think, you know, if I talk about my personal experience, going through an approach which is systemic and which drives change is a little bit hit and miss. And, and I re read in your book, you know, you talk about the discovery driven approach, which I really like, which isn't huge bets, but it's a lot of small steps based on what you find. Am I, am I understanding it right in that sense? Absolutely. So when you look at giant, big, mega failures in the world of innovation and growth, um, and, you know, I'm talking the big ones, you know, Webvan, one and a half billion dollars, Quibi, two billion dollars, uh, Iridium, eight billion dollars or more, depending on whose numbers you bit, they, they all have this common pattern. Um, untested assumptions taken as facts, few opportunities for low commitment testing. A lot of times, big teams, big budgets right up front, big ambitious announcements of how we're going to completely change this, that, or the other sector. Um, and these people embark on these big, huge, ambitious programs as though they had facts. And they don't. They have assumptions. And when you've got a high amount of uncertainty, you're much better served by taking a small bet, articulating a hypothesis, getting to a key checkpoint where you're going to learn something, then stopping and saying, okay, given what we've learned, what should our next step be? So you're planning to learn rather than planning to show that you were right. Yeah. And, but how do you balance that with demonstrating leadership commitment that we are going to go through some change? Um, because the organization is looking for, are we really going to do this or can I do some passive resistance here? Well, I think the leader needs to be very firm on the vision and very flexible on the means to realize that vision. So yes, we're going to Mars, but you know, before we get there, maybe we need to figure out how could we grow? carbon-based food in space for a long period of time. And, and then you might try a bunch of things that don't work, but you're working, you're making progress, knocking out approaches that aren't going to be fruitful to try to find those one or two that will. Yeah. And I, I, I read with um, interest, you used the BBC example of digital and Siemens and, you know, 80 million. And I remember it, I'm in the UK, so I remember it going, talking about it in Parliament because it was a big thing at the time. But actually, as you look back, and it was seen as a failure, of course, it was declared as a failure. But as you look back, it was the right idea, maybe at a different time, maybe done a different way, right? Well, um, and if you look at a lot of these that eventually proved to be successful, you know, they're often preceded by things that didn't work. I mean, an iconic example would be the Apple Lisa. Remember that? That I mean, it was a fabulous machine. It introduced graphical user interfaces and a mouse and a completely different way of dealing with uh, computing technology at the time. But it was a $10,000 machine in 1981. <laughs> and, yeah. and nobody wanted yeah. it. But out of that came the Mac, you know, the Macintosh, which was one of the most successful products of all time. So sometimes these failures do precede something that really does take off and work. Yeah, yeah, and, and so I think the discriminative approach is a fantastic description of how do you test your assumptions as you go down this route. Uh, and if I can just segue a little bit, you, you had a, um, an article in the Harvard Business Review 
around the permissionless corporation. Um, uh, and you said that was, uh, you know, uh, and you saw a wonderful example of that the last time you talked, you're talking about Patagonia. Um, can, can you just bring that to life for us? What do you mean by the permissionless corporation? Yeah, so if you think about a typical organizational structure, it's all oriented around control. And there's still a place for that in this world. I mean, we have the entire world of logistics, you know, based around the work of Frederick Winslow Taylor. You know, what's the one best way to do a given task? And so a lot of our control systems in large corporations are built around that. And consequently, a lot of our hierarchical structures are built around managers controlling people. You know, you tell people what to do when they do it, and that's life. Um, in a permissionless corporation, what you do is you use access to technology to replace what managers used to do. And you recognize that you may not be able to anticipate what response is needed at the edges in, in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so a permissionless corporation is one in which people who are in typically customer facing or, or ecosystem facing roles kind of know what to do and can take action without being told what to do. So it's a very different kind of empowerment than we've talked about you know, in bureaucracies forever. Mm. Yeah, and and the the, the example you, you you personally experienced something like that at Patagonia, right? You said you were buying something, and you had a service that surprised you. Oh, it's a great story. So my husband was in the market for a winter coat, and our son, who is of course very cool and on top of all these things, said, "Oh, you should check out Patagonia. You know, they make great coats, and I think you'd be very happy with it." So we get there, um, Upper West Side Patagonia store, and lovely salesperson takes us. And my husband sort of explains what he's looking for, and the salesperson says, "Well, I wouldn't recommend this one for that particular use case. I think this one would serve you better." And so we go through the sales process, get to the counter to pay, and um, my husband's very happy with his choice and then I said jokingly to the salesperson oh you know I'm, I'm gonna have to come back and he looked at me and he said why is that and I said because I have this Patagonia sweater which I actually happen to be wearing and I've, I've loved it so much and I've worn it like every day it was cool in the world and so I've, it's now got holes in it the buttons are starting to get pressed so he looked at me and said oh we consider that a product failure and I would be happy to replace it for you and I said no no honest, honestly it doesn't owe me anything I've worn this thing until it was practically done and he said no no we take that very seriously and so he said I can exchange it for you right now so I, I took my sweater off and handed it to him with a little bit of sort of oh my you know, a little bit of sadness and he indeed got me a brand new one um and my I tried it on and my husband and I said well that's really really nice maybe you should get another one in the same color uh or in a different color which I did so not only did he completely stun me but with this act of generosity I bought another one at full price, plus the coat my husband originally came into. But if you think about translating that simple act into a typical retail environment, you know, the the, the salesperson would have had to get permission. They would have had to check, you know, my, what's my what's my allowance for how much I can give away per customer. Mm -hmm. They would have probably been dinged for things like product shrink. I mean, it was just a disaster, right? Um, and this person was empowered to deliver the solution he thought made sense given the situation we were in. And I thought that was a brilliant example. Amazing example. And, and the reason I wanted to bring that one up is the cultural change required in most organizations to get your front line to feel empowered to behave like that is maybe the biggest part of this whole innovation value chain. How do you, how, what are you finding as to how you get there? 
Well, I think it starts at the top, right? It, it starts by creating context. And if you think about other companies, Netflix would be a great example or mm -hmm. uh, Salesforce, where you know th there's clarity about what's our strategic intent, what is it we want to accomplish, what methods will we use. For example, at Salesforce, they've got this great way of articulating their strategy, which they call the V2 mob. So it's values and vision. So what's my vision? What am I trying to accomplish? What are my values? How am I going to behave while I'm trying to accomplish that? Then what methods will I use to achieve it? What are the obstacles that are in my way? And how will I measure whether I'm successful? So that's the V2 mob. And what they do is at the beginning of their planning cycle, the senior people kind of put together a hypothetical one. That then gets opened up to the whole country for comments, which can run into the thousands of pages. Um, and once they kind of work through that process, lots of open input, right? And so people feel bought into it from the very onset. Once they finalize that at the top, then every single other person in the company has a V2 mom. And I had a Tiffany Bova, who's their chief sales evangelist, was in my class just recently. And she said when she first joined Salesforce, it was a bit of a shock because someone she didn't know called her up and said, uh, oh, well, I'd love to meet. So why don't you have a look at my V2 mom and I'll look at yours. And she said, you're going to look at my, my plan? Like, <laughs> that's something that just belongs to me. Uh, you know, it's, but these are very public. And what's interesting to me about that system is the conversation it creates. So let's say you and I are working together and there's something you would like me to do, but it would interfere with my ability to accomplish what's already on my V2 mom. Well, then we have a conversation, you know. So maybe maybe there's something that I need to not be doing or that I need to deprioritize so I can accommodate what we're doing. But all too often in organizations that are built very hierarchically, that conversation never happens. And so you have all these work imbalances. Nobody makes explicit what we're what we're doing and why and and you know who's bearing what load. And so it creates a level of transparency that's Remarkable. Yeah. Do you think um, do you think remote working makes it easier, harder? Or do we not have enough data yet? It being cultural change in an organization. What's what's your view around that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that it's simultaneously easier and harder. So I think one of the principles that's starting to emerge from the research that I've been doing is if you're working remotely you're much better working asynchronously. In other words, you're doing individual contributor type stuff where you're not depending on other people. When you're trying to collaborate, um, that seems to me to be better done in person, that you're, if you're trying to fill a creative task, I mean, I was just with an organization recently called Keysight, which is one of the out, out growths of Hewlett Packard in their original days. And one of them said, one of their leaders said something very remarkable to me. He said, you know, productivity goes way up, but innovation goes way down. And I think that's an interesting observation. So if you're doing something that can be measured in productivity terms, if I'm picking this thing up and moving it from here to there, then you can do that on your own. And, and the less organizational stuff you have to deal with, the better, right? But if you're doing something which requires creativity and collaboration with other human beings, I think you're better off doing that together. And what I think we have not done well of collectively corporate corporate and global world is we haven't really articulated carefully what kind of work is being done at this particular time whether it needs collaboration or not or whether it could be an independent thing and we still haven't let go in many cases of this idea of control you know a lot of 
speculation has been why, why do so many senior executives want people back in the office so that they can be controlled because they don't know what they're doing when they're just on their own. Whereas if you had really good metrics for what's individual contributor work versus what's collaborative work, I think you would come a lot farther in when do people need to be together, you know, and when are people perfectly able to go off and operate independently. And mm. uh, just wanted to talk maybe finally around the particular industries that our clients, our listeners uh, will be interested in, which is largely retail and hospitality restaurants. Um, now, you know, there's, of course, great example innovation, Amazon, Walmart uh, following on. Um, but, but, but the bulk of the organization, the bulk of the organization, I would say, from our client base, are struggling with the where and the how. You know, it's uh, by definition, it's very volatile, single-digit margins, massive technology and social change. Uh, any perspectives on those industries? Are clients doing amazing things that you've seen? Well, I think hospitality has come roaring back in many cases, but in a in a very different way, right? We're we're seeing, in fact, some of the really high end restaurants saying, "Hey, the way this thing runs is no longer sustainable." Um, we're also seeing really clever uses of technology to uh, enhance productivity, to make it more scalable. What some of these organizations are doing. So, there's a fascinating startup. Um, in, here in the northeast of the United States, which was uh, started by um, oh Mark Laurie, who's the gentleman that was brought into to um, Walmart to help them digitize, and it's literally like a restaurant on the truck. And what they're trying to commercialize is food preparation that is so convenient and priced so well that they could literally deliver you dinner on this truck and they can cook it at the bottom of your driveway. I mean, I just think it's oh. innovations like that are just amazing. Yeah. So yeah. I think this, um, the lens that I would use to look at these innovations um, through is something Clayton Christensen and Tony Ulwick called the jobs to be done lens, which is if you think about how your customers want to be served in, in those sectors, right? What What's the job they're trying to get done? So what are they trying to accomplish in their lives? And I think one of the mistakes we make uh, is we often think of ourselves sort of product outward. So if I look at financial services, you know, you have checking accounts and investment accounts and this and that and the other, you're not looking at the job the customer is trying to get done, which is plan for my own future security, make sure I have enough cash at all times, you know, mm -hmm. let me know when an opportunity is opening up that I should be aware mm -hmm. of. You know, it's a different way of looking at the customer. And I think with any of those sectors, we, we think too much product out and not enough, you know, outcome mm -hmm. involved. Yeah. And what your customers really want is some kind of outcome. I mean, if I could get the outcome without spending any money, that would be delightful, right? I'd much rather do that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and in terms of uh, maybe one final, final question, um, innovation and the talent refresh. So one, we talked a little bit about culture, but but is talent reskilling a dependency on driving innovation? I think so. Yeah, I think it's huge. Um, one of my favorite companies to look at is a sort of a boring old investment bank called Fidelity Private Investments. Um, and they converted to this permissionless way of working a few years back. And one of the things they've done is every Tuesday is set aside for learning. So that could be a formal learning, you know, taking a course. It could be 
doing something that's on your own. It could be going to visit customers, but every Tuesday, no meetings, no internal stuff. That's a, a day a week. If you think about that, 20% of their time is dedicated to figuring out what's next. I mean, that takes a real commitment. It's a fantastic message as well around learning, need for change, preparation for change, and so on. Some brilliant, brilliant lessons for us all, Rita. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, lots of feedback from our clients in the retail and hospitality sector. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Episode of the Commerce Cast uh, with Rita McGrath. Um, if you're interested in more details, I would definitely recommend the book Seeing Around Corners. Uh, I have to say it is uh, one of my textbooks that I keep going back to uh, as we think about how do we drive change for ourselves and for our clients. If you did enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast series and stay up to date on the latest trends and insights in the world of business and commerce. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again on the next episode.